Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and mercy towards us. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for your spirit. Lord, we ask for that very spirit to help us to hear your word, but also to help us become doers of your word. Lord, I ask for that same spirit now to preach the truth and nothing but the truth. What is not of you would it fall off in these moments. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Recently, I bought a new car battery. And um, I told myself after weeks and weeks that I didn't need a car battery. My car is fairly new, you know, modern at least. Um, When COVID hit, I stopped driving it for at least a month and just sitting there. So I figured, hey, let me let me just start it up one time, let it run, and then it'll 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 get going. It'll act normal. So that doesn't happen. So then I started up a few more times. I jump it, I started. I jump it, I started. I jump it, I started. I do that for a month. A month I do that. Still thinking my car just needs to run a little bit longer for it to get back into shape. So then I take it to a local car shop. I'm getting my oil changed. I say, hey, can you check out my battery? It's, for some reason, it's not starting. It starts when I jump it, and it runs great, and then I turn it off, and a couple hours later or the next day, the car is dead. So he checks it. He says, ah, I think your battery's fine. It's not in the best condition. It's okay, but it should start just fine every day. So, okay, I tell myself, well, that should buy me a few more weeks or months before I got to get a new car battery. Same thing happens. Another week goes by, and I'm still doing the same thing. I'm jumping the car, then I start the car, and it goes. Next morning, I wake up, car's dead. I'm living in this repeated cycle for at least a month. So then I go back and go to another get another opinion, a second opinion. And the mechanic tells me, well, in fact, the cells in your battery are actually malfunctioning. Your battery actually is dead. The jumping is just giving it a short fuse of power just for a little while, and then after a while, it's it's dead. You need a new battery. Well, um, if you know me, I'm I'm pretty cheap. I did not want to spend a hundred plus dollars on a new battery. So I get a new battery. So what was actually not causing my car to start up was the battery itself. The very thing that a battery is created for in a car is for it to give power to the car. But that very thing was not doing what it was supposed to do because it was powerless. What we'll see in our text this evening is a power that the world has never seen before. In those moments when I was going through this process of getting a new battery, I thought, man, this will preach. Here we go. Something that needs power to get going, something that needs power to, to actually do what it was created to do. All right, here it is. If 
if you think that the power that you have within yourself is enough to withstand or navigate or even flourish in this world, especially during the times we live in, you will be sadly mistaken. Your spiritual, spiritual well-being has, has nothing to do with your own power. You, you can't rely on it. And so what I hope to communicate from our text tonight is that you, the 21st century Christian, to ensure that your spiritual well-being is well, it needs a never-ending power called the Holy Spirit, or how I said it growing up in our church, the Holy Ghost. You need the Holy Ghost to survive in this world. See, Paul begins his argument in Ephesians 3, couching his argument for the importance of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer in the form of a prayer. Now, typically when someone prays, they want something to happen. They're, they're hoping that what they're praying and asking God to do will actually take effect in someone's life or their life. In this case, Paul is praying on the behalf of a church, a community, folks like us. He knows firsthand that when folks start operating out of their own strength, it typically doesn't bode well. And so the sense of urgency we see that Paul displays in verse 14 ought to indicate to us that this is a crucial moment in the life of a young church. See, Paul was the pioneer of planting churches in the ancient Near East time in the first century. This church is only five years old. We are a young church. His brother is on his knees pleading with God, with the God of heaven and earth, that he would empower this newly formed church full of Jews and Gentiles. See, this was no ordinary church. It, it was one in which persons from the far left and the far right culturally worshiped the same triune God under the same roof. Why? Because of this great mystery that has been revealed. See, in chapter 1 of Ephesians Paul talks about these spiritual blessings we have in Christ. He's breaking down the gospel and its foundations, the basic things of the gospel. Christ crucified. The great mystery revealed in the cosmos of the earth is Christ came, died, rose from heaven so that we, his people, could have life. That's the great mystery. And then in chapter 2, he says it's that very mystery, that very revelation that, that combines two opposite people groups to worship the same God under the same roof. If you know your history, Jews and Gentiles did not get along. They, they were the far right and the far left of today's society. But because of the power of Christ, they worship under one roof. So Paul makes it clear that this body will not only survive but they won't thrive within their own walls, let alone outside of their walls, unless they are infused with a power the world has never seen before, God's Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit expresses itself in, in a threefold way, and the first is through presence. What distinguishes Christians from the world is the indwelling of God's presence in their inner being. 
See, Paul in verse 16 is utilizing good, good theology here. He's proven that God is, in fact, more than adequate enough to be a source of unceasing power. In fact, God himself is the epitome of power. The phrase, according to the riches of glory, points to God's track record. Here we go. Don't stop me now. God has shown his power throughout redemptive history time and time again. It's a power bank. He, he, he has a reservoir, a, an endless amount of power. It's deep, it's long, and as we say in my neighborhood, this man's got long money. Some of you know what that means. He's got real long money. That translates to mean he has a wealth of resources. All this to say, his power goes way back, and the apostle was simply reassuring his readers that this power is not only reliable, but it can never run out. But it seems as though we too are just like this church in Ephesus. We, we ourselves need what my grandmother would call a praise break, a moment where we need to recall God's goodness. See, who, who do you think it was that when the Israelites marched around the walls of Jericho for seven days singing and dancing, and the moment God said, let that wall come down, the wall tumbled. All they did was dance. That was power. When Moses stuck his piece of wood on the shores of the Red Seas, and in an instant, the sea split in two. Why? So his people could be delivered. That's power. Or, or, or what about the moment where God literally rains fire from heaven to prove to the prophets of Baal that you, in fact, are not the true God. I am. See, those prophets of Baal, they, they couldn't procure their own fire or, or mysterious magic from their own hands. But the prophet of God says, I, know, I don't need to do anything. I know my God has power to do what he says. And in an instant, fire comes out of heaven. Friends, it is this type of power that Paul is praying desperately for to show up in the life of these folks in order that they may have strength. You, in order that you will have strength and the bandwidth and the capacity to live a transformed life. Sometimes we just got to get out of the way. Because when God shows up, he's not just asking for a room in the house or, or a little pallet in the corner of the, of the room. No, he wants the whole house to himself. He wants to invade every square inch, every square foot of that space with his presence and declare it as his. That house is your inner being. It's your soul, your heart, or as one scholar likes to put it, your moral personality. It's the thing that drives and directs your actions and desires and passions. God wants the deed to that. And so why would he want to do this? For, for whatever reason, or for the reason why he does so, is because he loves you. There's never been a time throughout human history, redemptive history, where God has not expressed his power out of the name of love. 
Without God's presence in our life, you would never have the capacity to know or experience the love he has for you in Christ. It's a power that's foreign. It's, it's, it's alien to our nature. See, the, the reality of the human heart before Christ moves in is one of coldness and hardness and hardness. It's stone. It's inebriated. It's clueless. It's stale. And Paul describes this very predicament in just a chapter before in Ephesians 2. He said, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That is the human predicament without the presence of God in your heart. See, God's presence creates the space we all need to receive the love of Christ. Here it is. Look with me. Verse 17. Paul is, is, is showing us a second dimension of the Spirit's power. Power of love. Verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. See, the indwelling of Jesus in your heart is how one becomes rooted and grounded in love. The way these verbs dwell and rooted and grounded show up in their original languages are, are very significant. They carry the sense of perfection, finality, comprehension. It, it, this, is, this is what's going to happen. They are perfect verbs, meanings they are true. When God moves in, when Christ is in your heart, dwelling in your heart through faith, this is to be. Paul writes in a, in, a, in a particular order on purpose. See, before you can be rooted and grounded in love that is perfect, you have to believe in, in a Jesus, in Jesus who is. You, you need faith. And I'm sure in a room this size, there are those sitting in these seats who do not have faith. Again, let me be pastoral in this moment. What do you have to lose? You have lived your entire life without knowing Jesus, and I could all but guarantee that life has been pretty, pretty difficult. It has got to be exhausting to know that you hold your own life in the palm of your hands. I can't imagine that type of pressure. But what if you didn't have to do that anymore? Receive Jesus into your heart and see what happens. Now, keep in mind, Paul is praying on behalf of his original audience here. He's, he's hoping, he's desiring for this idea of Christ, of, of Christians, of this church being rooted and grounded in love 
He wants this to happen in the life of the church. So this has to beg the question, does Christ own all the real estate of your heart? Is he getting the full meal or just the leftover crumbs of your life? For some of you, he may not be getting anything at all. There's an addiction that owns your, your heart and, and keeps Jesus at an arm length. Your, your need for clarity has made you anxious and led you to believe that maybe Jesus isn't really who he says he is. Jesus can't own your heart because your love for country is in the driver's seat. Your political allegiances now override your allegiances in Christ. Then there's you who says, Christ can just get a guest room, but that's it, no more. He can have his space, the space that I deem appropriate, and I get to have mine. You're afraid that if he sees the master bedroom in your closet, he'll throw you away like the others have done in your past. So what does a heart do when it doesn't want to be owned? It rebels. It chooses to love and trust things of the world rather than the one who created it. It tells you that you should put all your chips into your romantic relationships only to be left with frustration because he or she cannot fully love you or, or care for you the way in which you think they can. Married folk, we do it too. We look to our spouses to fill us up with love that only Christ can provide. And so what, what, what do we do? We put unrealistic expectations on each other and then wonder why we're always walking around mad and upset. On the other hand, it is hard for some of us to comprehend the truth of being grounded and rooted in perfect love because there has never been a day where you have experienced this in your own life. So what makes God any different? Early Sunday morning, he got up. Jesus got up. And if he wouldn't have got up, nothing I would have said would have mattered. The, the, the God of the universe stepped into our existence, put on flesh and skin, put on his J's, put his jeans on and his shirt, lived a life that you couldn't live, died the death you couldn't die, went to hell, wrestled and tussled with death, came out victorious and won. The resurrection of Jesus says that this is true. The resurrection of Jesus says that you can be loved. The resurrection of Jesus says that you are good enough. It's the proof in the pudding. And if you are still wondering if a trustworthy and perfect love exists, then look no further than a man named Jesus. Who do you know that would give up their life on behalf of someone else's debt? Not just one, not just two, but the entire world so that you may have an opportunity at a relationship with the Father in heaven. That's power. When the going gets tough, you better have something sturdy and reliable. Something that doesn't change with the seasons or times, but instead stays consistent and never loses power. Sex, drugs, money, power, popularity, education, fill in a blank. It doesn't cut it. It won't cut it. It has not cut it because you know. You know the outcome of those things. You know where that has left you and where that has led you. 
When life throws a curve ball, good luck. This is why in the Christian life, we need to let Jesus dig deep and settle wide in our souls, deep down. But Paul isn't done. Now we're getting to the culmination of his prayer. We see in verses 18 and 19 that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. See, the love of Christ, it's a reservoir. It's an endless reservoir of grace that no human can understand. This is why we need strength. We need the strength of God to help us in this endeavor. See, the the, the very direct results of Jesus holding us up in his love is not that you can love him more. No, no, no. It's that you would see how much he loves you. Come on now. See, you thought, You thought you knew how much Jesus loved you, but you really have no idea. See, without Christ in your heart, one cannot even attempt to understand the density of his love. See, Paul is illustrating God's love for you in Christ with expressions that take on infinite measures. See, our feeble minds, we we don't even have categories for this kind of love. And the, and the best example I can give, the, the only way I know how to wrap my own brain around this is a father's love for his child. See, Winslow would never know fully how much I love her. Nor will I be able to express how much, I, how much love I have for her either. But see, that doesn't change what's true. That doesn't take away anything. My love for her is endless, and, and, but, but even then, even the love her father has still does not compare to the love that her heavenly father has for her. Jesus wants you to know about his love for you so that you, here, here it is, don't miss it, that you can be filled with all the fullness of God. It's not enough that we understand Christ just intellectually in our minds. It is so immense, so deep, that it surpasses knowledge and moves into experience. He wants you to feel his love, too. I'll leave you with this. When believers come together and worship the living and triune God, all that power that dwells in the Godhead now dwells not only within you, but now it's in the midst of his people. The power of God is here in this moment, right now, because we, are, we have come together to worship him. The fullness of God is at work right now. This is where you get a fuller expression of the love of Christ. So, so, so let, me be, let me help you. Let me, let me be clear. Let me direct application. Sunday worship must be an integral piece to your walk with Jesus. Whether that's physically, over the the screen, YouTube, the live feed, whatever the case may be, we, we have to worship. To experience the love of God, we need the help 
of God's people. There is something very unique, very powerful about corporate worship that can't be described. It has to be experienced. You know that feeling. You know that experience. When we sing songs and we pray and we see folks, there's something that wells up inside of us. There's something that just feels right. You were created to do that. You were created to feel that. Paul wasn't messing around when he said you need the saints to comprehend the power of God's presence in Christ's love. When you, you, when you get a front row seat to observing the Holy Spirit transform a life that changes the way you think about Jesus and his power. Also that we would, in verse 20, give God glory in the church. That's what we do when we come together. There was only one day a week where slaves looked forward to the most. Guess what day that was? Sunday. They would put on their best. Why? Because that was the day they could forget what happened during the week. Just for a few moments, they could step out of their realities and praise their father. They, would, they could have the endurance and perseverance to withstand hundreds of years of brutality because they went to church on Sundays. Just for a few moments, they felt good about themselves. Just for a few moments, the fullness of God was, was operating in their life. More so any other time during the week, they could hold each other. They could touch each other. They could talk. They could see how folks were doing. They could pray for one another. They could witness the power of God in, in that man's life, and that woman's life. Every Sunday, they were experiencing the very love they, they knew cognitively, but they got to experience deep down in their souls. And they knew that one day they would overcome Sunday worship. They were being filled with all the fullness of the Godhead three in one. And for a few short hours, they were on top of the mountain. We shall overcome. Friends, the same? Yes, no? Hear me clear. There are no comparisons to that life. None. But what is true is the God that they felt, the God that got them through, is the same God that wants to be at work in your life and in the life of this church. Why? So that his glory will be known to the ends of the world. Friends, we need power. I need power. And we need his spirit to grant us his presence, to give us his love, and we need the power of worship in our hearts. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your spirit. And would no one leave her the, the way they came in. Amen.